I sat down in my cell and uh, I tried to write the truth. I don't know why, but I tried to write the truth because my head was so jumbled. And I couldn't even write the truth. I would get maybe like three words into it and start crying. I couldn't even process like real life. I had to like create these, all the different stories, one thing, all the different stories. And I had to create this like false identity for all of them. And I, like it was then, I was like, I don't even know who the fuck I am. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. What time's pizza coming? Whenever the fuck it gets here. Perfect. I'm starting. I'm already recording, so oh. fucking chill. Welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey podcast. Uh, today's a f- pretty cool day. I've got uh, one of the most entertaining dudes i've ever met in recovery i'm always maybe. here well yeah <laughs> i'm you here every week we, we, yeah, you okay. never lost me <laughs> and we have a guest today <laughs> um yes oh sorry uh plugged in media network podcast uh nicole davis real estate buying or selling use nicole davis nice and with that we will ryan what's 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 up buddy uh not much you know still sitting uh enjoying the aftermath of the recovery capital conference the national recovery convention that we attend every year and our proud um friends of a lot of people that attend that that conference and i'm looking at one right now um yeah i just love being part of this community the recovery community right it's it's one of those places and it's very rare that you can go to a place for two full days and just see such a amazing community of people recovering out loud yeah. and, and shining the light on recovery. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm not going to lie. If you hear some background noise, we got like a kind of pizza party and post conference party going on in our hotel room. So there's people coming and going, but we'll get to them later. So without further ado, uh, I would like to introduce our guest today, Mr. Grant Denton. Drum roll. <laughs> so I met Grant uh, about a couple months ago now. Uh, he's out of Reno, Nevada, and he is—he's uh, got a pretty cool story and what he's done with his life since. So, Grant, tell me your story, sir. Um, and, and how are we with language? Oh fuck! Just, okay, letter buck, buddy. <laughs> Let me just clear that out. It's a very <laughs> authentic <laughs> podcast. I'm like, <laughs> I've spoke at schools before, and anyway. Uh, and made that mis- mistake of slipping. So, uh, um, it's kind of echoey, yeah? That- You're good. Just go. Okay. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from Reno. I, um, I'm, I can't have that one. So, I'm born, I'm not born and raised in Vegas, from Reno. I'm, uh, was addicted to heroin meth for, for nine years and, um, and on and off the streets, the whole fucking cycle, dude, right? You know, you, um, once once you get into at, into a certain place, you start cycling down. Do you know? Um, uh, so, <laughs> anyways, uh, so so yeah. So I was I was there. I was on and off the streets. The whole criminal justice gig, in and out of jail, uh, sober living. You know, get your shit together for a little while back. You know, and then and then for the last three years of uh, of my addiction, it was just on the streets. Uh, you know, squatting and you know, squatting in houses, sometimes hotels, shit like that. And, um, and I remember like, uh, you know, cause people are always like, what was it that made you change? There wasn't like a thing. It wasn't like one thing. There was a series of things when you, when you go, when you back up and when you recall like what happened and it was, I remember I was standing at a bus stop, um, on Boulder highway, standing at a bus stop and I get a text from my, on the, on my phone in all caps. And it says, uh, you are a loser. And, uh, and it was from my ex-wife and it was, it was valid. Right. Uh, because I just, I was just at her house visiting my kids. And very rarely did she ever let me come over. And I was one of those guys that when I came over, you'd have to do an inventory for your <laughs> shit, like put everything upstairs. And, and, uh, she did her inventory and realized that when I was over there, I'd, um, you know, and when you're, 
when you're doing heroin, you got to get, we don't know what normal is. So we have to like kind of gauge and I'm sprinkling meth in there. Like, well, I'm going to not out, but not too much. So you sprinkle a little bit of meth and you have a Southern comfort in your pocket. And so she allowed me to come over because my boys would campaign for me. They were, they were four and uh, six at the time. And they would like campaign, like, can dad come over? Can dad come over? And she's like, all right. And so she, she would put everything up and I come over. And then while I was there, I started to get a little dope sick and your kids notice my sons notice. And they were like, uh, Asher was like, dad, dad, you okay, dad, you okay, dad. And I'm like, um, dad's a little sick. Can you, can you, can you help him? And, and, uh, so my son went up. The way to help me was to get me some money so I could, and of course he didn't know what it was for, but, uh, I was like, dad needs some money. Can you grab me some money? And he went upstairs and took 60 bucks out of his mom's purse, ran it down. It's crazy. Like kids will do whatever to help, to help their dad. And it's, you know, a lot of us feel guilty for like, for our lifestyle. And you, and I'm sure you should, there's some things to be guilty about, but like your kids will always love you. They're always rooting for you for the most, you know? And, uh, I remember I took the money and I gave him a hug. I love you guys. And they, you know, and I went to the bus stop when I got to the bus stop, I'm already, you know, texting my dude, and um and that's when she sent that text and i sent her a text back i was like yeah well you're a fucking whore you know fuck you erica but then i googled i fucked up and googled loser because i wanted to come back or come back at her with some really sharp shit you know the definition of loser is actually (laughs) and it said uh in the act of losing i was like fuck that's when it hit me like i'm the textbook definition of a loser and um and I look at my, you know, when you're when you're homeless, you don't get to fucking try on shoes, right? You just acquire some shoes. So if they're too small, you cut the backs out. And if they're too big, you double, triple, or quadruple up on socks. And I was like, my Nikes had the backs cut out. And I got a backpack with fucking everything I own in it. I'm like, dude, I am a loser. And, um, and it left a mark. Not enough to not get me high. You know, I was like, well, I'll still meet up with my dude and I still move. But that like, that left a, a bit of a mark and I ended up I went to detox and then I came out and went through the cycle again. And um, eventually I get locked up. I'm facing uh, five to seven for a burglary. And uh, it's like I was talking about earlier. I like when you're on the streets and you live that lifestyle, going to prison is a risk, risk assessment. Yeah. You're yeah. either going to end up dead or in prison. That's a gig. And so yeah. like, bro, I'm, I'm tough. I politic well. So if you're going to sentence me to prison, bring it, you know? And so I was bought in for it. And I remember I got, there's a few things right along the line. Like I got, uh, when I was in intake, I remember I'm calling, I'm doing, I'm calling all the people, you know, to get money on my books. I'm doing the campaign. And, um, it was interesting. One of the calls I made was to my son, uh, or to my ex-wife and I was like, Hey, I'm locked up. I'm sorry. All the things. And she puts Roman on the phone. He was like, he was six at the time. And, when he would enter anytime he would answer the phone because I was gone so often he'd always be like hey dad where are you dad dad where are you dad did you say dad dad where are you dad <laughs> he would say this little fucker he was so when he would poop he'd be in the bathroom when he was potty training and he would be sitting he'd be like dad 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 <laughs> and he would want to have a conversation with me when he pooped he's like he shits like an old man he's 14 years old he still does it he's like dad God, <laughs> but not, some things never change. Um, but anyways, uh, I really wish we had some video right now. You reenacted that. Yeah. <laughs> dude, remind me to tell you about the dick phase my son went through. <laughs> but, oh, dude, it was. Do you got a second? So listen, when he, when Asher was newborn, I like I had tried to like clean my life up, dude. I was an entertainer on the strip for five years. Um, I was in, in the club scene, in the drug scene, you know, and uh, and I, I got a girl pregnant. Not my wife. <laughs> Shit had to change, right? <laughs> and uh, so I, I, you know, and, and I found out I'm having a son. And so I started to get to know her. I didn't really know her, you know? And uh, so, but, you know, this little fat little fucking kid was born. The fattest kids are the cutest kids, right? And he was, he would just, he was, he couldn't even look. Do you know what I mean? He's like, I would come home from work and he would like, he was so fat. You just want to squeeze the shit out of him, dude. And he uh, he went through this phase, right, where we I would take him. I was trying to be efficient, right? So I didn't bathe him in a sink like our parents did with us. I didn't do any of that. I would just, when I would come home, I would get him in the shower with me. And I'd hold his legs up like that against the fucking thing. And <laughs> set him up behind me. And uh, and I was I was cleaning. I was, in, you know, I was clean, washed him, set him back. And he would sit back there like, just, just like that. <laughs> 
stare at me, right? And then as I'm washing up, I feel something on my leg. And he's putting his little dick on my leg. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, gosh, don't point that thing at me. And he laughed. He thought it was the funniest shit. He fucking laughed so hard. And he tried to do it again. I'm like, what the f- Stop it. Stop touching me with that thing. And so I... Turned the shower off and I dried him up and we're laughing and his mom's doing makeup against the, the, the you know against the, the counter like that and he runs over he's like dad dad when he put his dick on his mom's leg and it was the funniest shit and so there was like two months where this kid would run around putting his dick on stuff and uh, it was so fucking funny and he didn't stop doing it until I stopped laughing Ryan went through that phase like three months ago. <laughs> And it was like so inappropriate at work. Oh God! Having clients and business partners. Have you seen a young kid stick his tongue in monkey bars or something? Yeah. Yeah. Ryan's actually still going through his dick phase. It's really weird at the conference. Rick. Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Made things awkward when we first met. (laughs) We've moved past it, but I remember I called. I'm like, let me talk to Roman. Roman got on the phone. He's like, Dad, where are you, Dad? I'm like, Dad's in jail. Probably going to be going away for a while. And he was like, let me talk to the cops. <laughs> <laughs> like, this little, like he's going to negotiate the terms of my release <laughs> from jail. Huh? He's going to put his dick on him. Dad, uh, let me put my dick on one of them cops. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so anyways, and I remember I was like in the, in the thing, and I'm calling people, I'm calling people to campaign and telling you know, people, you know, hey, I'm going to be going away and whatever story. And I remember there was this, this black dude, the old crackhead dude, sitting across the way from me. And you can hear everybody's conversation in there, you know. And, uh, and he's like, and I looked over and he's fucking staring at me, like with his face. And I'm like, what's up, homie? And he's like, you a motherfucking lie. I'm like, what the fuck you talking about, man? He was like, motherfucker, you just called seven people and told seven different stories. You a motherfucking liar. <laughs> I was like, and he's right. I'm like, hey, fuck you, man. Mind your own business, man. Motherfucker. And then I called the eighth person and told him a different story. Well, and then I remember, like, I went up to my, uh, and these are all these, like, self-awareness things. That you, yeah. When you start to pay attention, when you start to, like, when the veil is lifted and you start to, like, process, like, how the fuck did I get here? What is it? And I remember, like, I sat down in my cell and uh, I tried to write the truth. I don't know why, but I tried to write the truth because my head was so jumbled. And I couldn't even write the truth. I would get maybe like three words into it and start crying. Yeah. I couldn't even process like real life. I had to like create these, all the different stories, one thing, all the different stories. And I had to create this like false identity for all of them and I like it was then I was like I don't even know who the fuck I am and addiction isn't just a it's not a drug fucking problem the drugs do their job they're very consistent they do exactly what they're supposed to do every time I drank I got drunk every time I shot the fuck up I got high it was an identity crisis I didn't know who the fuck I was I turned into something else I couldn't Mm -hmm. even write the truth and that was like that hit me and then but I still kept, I was, you know, still facing prison. And I remember I wrote my granny a so letter. So, like, how early in your sentence is this? This is right when I, I hadn't gotten a sentence yet. Oh, okay, so you're still waiting trial. You're still just, waiting. Yeah. And then I got a three to, then I got the three to five. And I had writ, wrote my granny um, to, uh, my granny, my granny's, she was the one that held out. Like, she was, because she actually believed my lies. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> granny was like, no, Grant's not on drugs. He's just really skinny and weird. <laughs> and he likes to paint fences for no <laughs> He's just a really awkward boy. Don't judge Grant. You know, my granny, like, always, like, held out for me. When, like, you know, she would, when I would forget my kid's birthday, she would always get him birthday cards and sign my name on it and, Every once in a while, she'll get me. My granny was my girl, dude, and I would, I wrote her a letter, and instead of like sending me a check like she usually did, she um she wrote me a letter saying that she can't like the family got to her, they're like he's a fucking drug addict, granny, stop, <laughs> and she said that she can't support my lifestyle anymore, and I wrote her a letter, I was like granny, you're the worst, and I you know I was like you're just like dad, 
you banned me, my mom, and this and that. And I'm trying to like manipulate her through through that. And she didn't. She told me she was like, I won't send you money, but if you want, I can um, I can send you books. Mm. I was like, what the fuck am I gonna do with a book, Granny? And then, and then <laughs> it was like two weeks later. I was fucking. I was. I had this a book like this. I was using it on my on my bunk to write letters. And um, I never really looked at the book. It was just a hardback book. And uh, I remember I like pulled the paper off of it and I actually opened the book and it was a, a book. It was a Wiccan book. It was a witchcraft book. And I'm like, what the? So I wanted to read it to be able to make fun of witches later on. You know, <laughs> I'm always, you're always looking for ammo. Do you know what I mean? Just in case I run into a witch and I yeah. really want to fucking hit him with some hard facts. Do you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so... So I'm thumbing through the fucking witchcraft book, and there's a section in there about um, about being grounded. And I started to read it, and, it, and I, I I waited for everybody to sleep. Of course, I was in a dorm room with about like 280 convicts. So you know. I, I'm going to go ahead and stop you for a minute before yeah. this gets too deep, and we end up in some political hot water. Are you a warlock by any chance? What? <laughs> The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, those are real things. Right? Just to be clear, okay, continue on. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I I, uh, I wait for everybody to sleep, and I open this book, and I did what it told me to do. You know, I, you read a sentence, and you and I sat down in the square, and I planted my feet on the ground. My back was straight. My hands were right here, and uh, and it tells you to, you know, start going, moving through these breaths. You know, you count the breaths in, hold it, like box breathing, right? You hold it, and then, so I was doing the breaths, and then I would read more, and it said to, you know, close your eyes and visualize your feet, right, as the trunk of a tree, and your feet are growing roots, and I did it, and I, like, really fucking visualize this, and then my, and your arms, I, of course I didn't stick my arms out, but, like, I visualize it, you know, my branches, and I felt the wind in my, moving through my leaves, and it was so, and I started crying, like, and it was the first moment that I'd ever, like, just stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, my brain was always going and I'm always doing shit to, to try to correct shit. I'm causing trauma and trying to fucking, you know, doing Man. all this damage and running from all the things. And it was like, had this moment. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I wrote my granny. I was like, dear granny, sorry about the last letter. <laughs> can you please send me books on mindfulness and meditating? And so she started dumping these books on me and I was just, and I didn't like, you know, when you, when I, um, I would say that I might have ADD a little, little bit. And, uh, and so just, just like, a hint. Yeah. <laughs> ah, and, and so when I was in school, like I couldn't pay attention to shit. So I thought I was stupid. Do you know, I would, and I would read chapters of books and not know what the fuck I just read. And then I would read through it again and not remember any of that. But I, you know, and so I had to like, when my granny sent me these books, I had to teach myself how to learn again and part of that was like visualization part of it was i would get the books and i would just plagiarize like the the uh, i would read the sentence remember it write it read it remember it write it and um and so i started to learn and then i well, like knew that like i was capable i would remember the shit so i knew i was like capable of learning i'm like what the fuck and then so and then all these things started to happen like i started to have this paradigm shift where i was like well you know, and I, a couple things happened. Like one was, I was like, you know, I'm 36 years old. I haven't done anything with my life. I don't know. You know, like anytime I went to get a job before, they're like, hey, so uh, you were an electrician from here to here. What happened for nine years? You're like, ah, well. Uh, <laughs> funny story. <laughs> funny story. I like to party. I can be a fun guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, so there was that, like, there's that, like, that gap and it was it was and I don't I didn't know what skill I had I couldn't even be an electrician anymore because I lot you know the things have evolved I'm sure yeah. I could have but and so I thought like dude I'm 36 I don't know how to do anything I don't I've had kids that I haven't fathered I got to be stupid and and I really felt like there's something wrong with me like I was stupid and then uh, and so I was like well if I'm gonna be stupid I'm gonna be the best looking stupid dude <laughs> and so I started training fucking training i'm out in the di- i'm on the wreck throwing towels over the basketball hoop doing pull-ups i'm dragging my celly across the fucking across the date you know across the basketball court on a sheet doing like rows i'm fucking that's all i did was train eat and sleep 
remind me later. I tell you. So I, I actually, and I became a Jew. I thought you were a warlock. I was. You're warlock. bouncing around a lot well, here on the feed <laughs> spectrum, buddy. I did a lot of things, so I didn't have to hustle. I didn't want to get involved with the crew. So, like, a lot of times to, to eat, because I didn't have money on my books, you'll have to create some sort of a hustle, right? You're two for one in people. You, and so I didn't want to do that. So my hustle was I converted to Judaism so I could get a kosher tray so that I could have extra food to hustle, you know, so I would sell it. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a Jew slash Mormon slash warlock. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. There's a joke in there somewhere. Yes, first. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so I just started fucking training real hard, and I was reading and reading, and then um, I read something about, um, about frequency, right, about how everybody puts out a frequency. Now, it's anything that I would have read there could have been bullshit, but as long as it served me, I would have believed it. Mm -hmm. Do you know, as long as it, because I wanted the fuck out, I wanted to grow, I wanted to become someone different. So you could have, you could have told me to cast spells on motherfuckers, and I would have done it if that would have got me out. Do you know what I mean? Um, And one of the things was about frequency, and it talks about, uh, do you know, how everybody operates on a different frequency. If you're a lower functioning person, if you're not doing well in life, if Mm -hmm. um, you're kind of a dirtbag, you operate on a low frequency. But if you're altruistic and you're loving and you're kind and you're helpful and you're and you're you know uh, flourishing then you're higher frequency and uh and it did this in the book it talked about this demonstration where they took a pin right a, a needle and they put a motor on it and they dropped the needle into um still water and they turned this needle up from this motor up to a high frequency where it's vibrating so fast that in the water it created this like beautiful flower and then they took the other pin they got another pin, put a motor on it, stuck it right next to it, and they turned it to the same frequency, and you got these two pins, you know, moving so quick that you got these two beautiful flowers right next to each other. And then they took one of the motors and they turned it down to where it's on a low frequency. And what happened was the pin that was on a low frequency, of course, the flower went to this shitty-ass ripple, but it also didn't fuck this flower up because it was so close to the flower that had a high frequency, it fucked both flowers up. And I remember like, and this one's still operating high frequency, but because it was close to this low frequency needle, it fucked, the fly, it fucked this flower up. And I remember like looking across this, I, I had to read it a couple times. I'm like, did I read that right? And I read it and I'm like, oh shit. And I looked out and there's like the sea of all these low frequency motherfuckers. And I'm like, and I made a vow. I'm like, mm-hmm. nobody's fucking with my flower dude um, <laughs> that's it and so i changed my sleep schedule to where i was i would sleep during the day when everybody was up and uh and i would be up at night when everybody's sleeping i just i didn't want anything to do i was so committed that i changed my sleep schedule and uh and then i actually read in a book um called spark where it talks about bdnf brain derived neuropathic factor and how it, um, it's a protein that helps neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. You can grow a new fucking brain. Yeah. You don't even need your own brain. Do you know, like, they had that commercial. Remember the commercial with the egg? Yeah, this, this is your is brain. This your brain, that guy yeah. in the seedy fucking apartment. Like, first of all, why are you in that apartment, sir? It's weird. <laughs> you know, it's all dark and fucking. And then he, and, and he's like, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And he shows you the pan. And you, when you're a kid, you're like, fuck. I don't want to fry my brain. Right? <laughs> And then you do a lot of drugs. <laughs> and, then, and then you try to clean up. And every time I would get cleaned up, I would think about this egg. Like, well, fuck, dude. Like, yeah, even if I don't do drugs. You can't unpickle brain, a pickle, right? Yeah. And so I thought that. N- nobody told you, though, what to do after you fry your brain. People yeah. tell you, like, you're going to fry that shit. And they're fucking right, dude. You're going to fry some shit, dude. But nobody tells you what happens after you fry the brain. And how do you get it back? And, um, and it was that, like, where I'm like, dude, mm-hmm. that's it. I can... I can grow a new brain. I don't even need this old one. I exercise. Fuck this stupid old warlock brain. <laughs> warlock Jew Mormon. Warlock brain. Jew yeah. Mormon brain. But uh, but uh, and that was it, dude. And I and part of it was I remember there's a couple things that happened before I before I left that like really grabbed me is because uh, I learned a, a, a lot in jail. I was just wanted to change. I wanted to be a different dude. And um, because I was up so late. There wasn't anybody to really hang out with, which is good, right? I needed to learn as much as I could, except for this, this dude from Africa. And he was like from the, the uh, what is it? The, um, what are the tribes out there that were fighting? 
uh, Tutsi, Tutsi tribe. He's, he's from one of those tribes. This motherfucker, like, you know that he's chopped motherfuckers' hands off before. He was badass, dude. He didn't talk much, but he and you didn't know, because this is where we're going. Like, there are murderers in there, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what his gig was. I didn't want to ask him. But we played chess all the time. And he didn't speak really good English, but he, he had that accent, you know, the, the yeah, yeah. African accent, and he talked like this. Yeah. Do you know? And, uh, and we would play chess together, and he would always, he had made these chess pieces out of toilet paper and sugar water. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, dude, it was, and they were, I mean, it was awesome. And I would play with him, but he would always fucking crush me, always beat me. And, uh, and then sometimes he would just fuck with me. Right, where he'd make me feel like I'm going to win. Just just to, just to fuck with me. He was doing it on purpose, man. And then one time it was like Well, that's three. how you keep the guy playing, right? That's, yeah, yeah. That was just so he had a partner to play against. Yeah, never let me win. Never let me win. <laughs> just give me a, a couple. Just where give I, you a taste of where it. Where I started to talk shit. Where I'm like, watch it, motherfucker. Watch it. Here we come. Here we come. Watch the horse. You know, and then he's yeah, like, yeah. boom. And he would fucking do And he did that once. And I... Uh, was so pissed that I knocked these things. I knocked the, the pieces off and the board off. I'm like, mother... And I'm trying not to yell because it's like three in the morning. I'm like, motherfucker. And he was like, do you feel that? I'm like, do, do I feel what? Pain. The pain in your brain. Do you feel that? I'm like, yeah. I feel some pain in my brain right now. He was like, you are growing. The only way you grow is when you feel pain, just like when you're exercising, just like when you're out there exercising. He's like, you might not feel it right now because it's uncomfortable, but that pain in your brain means you're growing. You're going to be a better chess player. I was like, oh, oh, shit. Do you know? And and I'll never forget that. And he's like, now pick up the fucking pieces. (laughs) Put them back on the thing. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Do you know? But like, but that was it. Like he, he helped me to understand that this pain is benefiting me. Do you know what I mean? And it's, that's that's part of the gig. Like, if you're going to, you know, you're going to experience pain no matter what. So you better fucking develop a relationship with it. You better understand that it's for you. Do you know, it's like Henry Rollins wrote a uh, <clears throat> wrote an essay called Iron in the Soul. Have you heard it? You should look it up, dude. He talks about how he was like this little nerd, got picked on. They were giving him swirlies all the time. They were fucking with him. And one of his coaches were like, hey, you're having a hard time, huh? And he's this military guy. And he's like, you're having a hard time, I can tell. Could you fucking do what I tell you to and I'll help you out? And uh, he told him to go get 100-pound weights, gave him an exercise regimen to do. And Henry went home as a kid and started doing this, doing this, started pumping iron, lifting weights. And in the story, he just talks about how the, the, you know he developed a relationship with pain and how he understood that through the iron, right, is how the iron respects you enough to not be easy to pick up. Byron respects you enough to teach you humility when you try to overlift something that'll that'll hurt you. Do you know it? Uh, in in on the last sentence of the of the essay, he says two hundred or friends come and go. Two hundred pounds is always two hundred pounds. So and, and and that was it. You want consistency in your life, right? You can, and that's where I turn to. People are going to do whatever whatever they're going to do, but for me, it was like that was it. Train hard, love hard, work your ass off. Do you know? And so when I when I got out, that was that was it, dude. I just went hard. So this is where I think it gets really cool. What you've done since? Well, not that that wasn't cool, and you're not fucking hilarious. Yeah, oh, but are you saying that I'm not a warlock? You trying to take it back, but TBD. I haven't seen you cast a single fucking spell yet. So <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. We'll, with you. we'll see how that plays out here. I saw you do some pretty wild shit last night, but. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So okay, now you're released, and and uh, like this is. Great opportunity to talk about your program, what you're doing in Reno, and who you're helping, and how you're playing that out. Um, so when uh, when I got out, I wanted to be a personal trainer. Like I had a I had a philosophy. Like and, with, and I think it's important. Like that when when you're fucking in recovery, you bigger you you, sh- you should probably figure out your philosophy. What is it? It's got to. I think it has to be simple. Mine was uh, I read a. I read two things. Uh, I mean, I have it tattooed on my leg, right? I read two things. One was from um, Anton Chekhov, who's a prolific writer, playwright, artist, and he wrote. Uh, he was on. He was homeless. Him and his mom were homeless, and he was an alcoholic. And he and he wrote. He made a vow to himself, uh, he, and he said, "No more bowing and apologizing to people. No more blaming and complaining. No more disorderly living or wasting time. The answer to everything is work and love. Work and love." And then right after that, I read something from the 
from the Dalai Lama. He says, you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor. The only thing you're entitled to is your labor. And that fucking hit me, dude. Because like, if you believe that, if, 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 if you're not entitled to your labor, then, then everything's a gift, right? And if all you have is your work, then take that shit. Work as hard as you fucking can and just take, then the gifts will come. Yeah. And I mean, I, I got it. I mean, that's, I believe this. I came out with that philosophy and I wanted to be a personal trainer. I had three bracelets on. I had one from County, one from PMP, and then one was a scram bracelet. I mean, I had to fucking sleep on the couch. And I was tethered to a wall because you know, if those things die, you're done. Mm. It's a wrap. And, uh, and so, but I just, I worked my ass off, asked people to be my mentors. I read somewhere that like, this is, I read somewhere that women leaders had to work harder to, to get to where they're at, you know, because of, you know, like they say, because of emotional, um, what is it? That emotional intelligence, a higher EQ, not saying, um, but hear me out. Right. So I, 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 I ain't I, arguing I, that. Huh? I ain't arguing that. Well, they say that when a, when a, when a male enters the room, the male expects the room to adjust to him. Right. And a lot of, lot of, lot of women leaders, when they walk in, they have this emotional barometer that can adjust to the room. And, and so I asked, I was asking all these like professional females, a judge. I had a, the lady that was the vice president of the Marriott business owners. I was just asking them to be my, to be my mentor. And they, I mean, I I had so much help. So many people were directing me and moving me in different uh, places. And so I wanted to, I wanted to be a personal trainer and, uh, and I realized that um, that through helping folks in sober living, like I would, I would learn something. I was telling you, I would learn something on the bus ride to IOP. There was a two-hour bus ride. I would watch TED Talks, and I would learn something on that two-hour bus ride, and then try to teach it when I got back. Yeah. You know, so I'm just learning and teaching, and that's just that's all I wanted to do. It's just I wanted to work in sober living, and so I started, you know, became a manager of the house, and then operations manager, and real quick climbed up, and then within about two years, I moved to Reno to do, uh, to do sober living. And, uh, there's a portion of the story where I quit this company, but, uh, and I was unemployed for a little while and me and my son almost had to move into the homeless shelter. And, and it was crazy as, uh, I, I just got a call from a guy. I was speaking at a, at a, a methadone clinic and about a month earlier, and the guy like really liked, you know, he really liked me, favored me for some reason, and he called me and was like, "Hey man, I hear you're you're looking for a job." I'm like, "Oh, I am looking for a job." He's like, "Dude, I I really want you to come work for me," and I'm like, "I would love to come work for you." And he was like, "But I don't have any positions for you." <laughs> I'm like, "Ah, fuck, man," and uh, but he's like, "But if you can come up with something, you know, if you can convince me that you can come up with something." Then uh, I'll hire you. I'll create one for you. And so that weekend, I was I, I came up with this idea to, to have a volunteer crew, like and you don't like all you need to do is pay my wages. I'll get all the materials. I'll get everything donated. The van, the fifth. I'll, I can. I'll do that. You just um, you know and let me take these guys. And the pitch was is that when we're when we're doing so much damage out there in addiction to ourselves to others, you know um, that it's like. It, it's it's difficult to integrate back into a community that you've been fucking taken from for so long and so it's it's important it's your duty to give back you must whether you agree with it or not like you should probably be giving back because you've done some damage dude and um and so i was like let me run this volunteer crew with the clients and he was like all right dude and he hired me the next freaking day and so and then and then so anyways i got got stable me and the boy and we uh we, uh, I, I turned that program into the Karma Box gig where we started building boxes that look like little libraries. And I would have, you know, somebody would build it, somebody else would paint it, and, uh, and then we'd place it in front of a store. And when you place it, and, and, then, uh, and then you have somebody adopt it, right? Like, you guys are interested. This is your box, you fill it. Do you know this is your box, you fill it? And it was, and it just took off. Like, we went from, one box in 2018 was our September 2018. We placed our first box, and now we have over 70 in Northern Nevada. Just and they're everywhere, right? And people just ran with it, and it was, it was because, right? You you give, you know, you give people ownership of something. Mm-hmm. Like the more people that own this gig, the more likely it is to succeed. 
and yeah, I mean, and part of that was I remember, like somebody told me when I pitched them on the idea, I was like, dude, what if we did boxes? And they're like, yeah, it sounds pretty stupid. <laughs> you always got to have that friend, that wet blanket friend, yeah. the red team, blue team friend that like shits on all your ideas. Yeah, Ryan. And, but I, they're shitting I, I on them for Ryan. a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well you, that's how you you want to create a good fucking program you want to create a good gig have somebody shit on your fucking on your all your ideas and you outwork every fucking thing they say so i i had a friend that was cool enough to wet blanket everything i came up with (laughs) so i could outthink this motherfucker do you know what i mean you want it's important to have one of these wise guys around so you can sharpen your blade do you know and uh and so he was like dude that's a bad idea I was like, what? no, people are going to, he's like, no, motherfucker, there's going to be these boxes all over fucking town that'll just turn into trash and they'll be in the streets. And they're like, look at what Grant did to the city. Put all these dumbass boxes everywhere and nobody's using them. They'll throw trash in them and everything. And, uh, and so I started thinking, like, how can you make it, you know, give it to people where it's their own? And I remembered <clears throat> my brother, TJ. TJ. TJ was a carpenter in a union, like, in the 90s. And dude, he's a great fucking guy, right? But he's a carpenter in the union. I have to let me preface this. Good guy. Um, but uh, but he despite he, what I'm about to say, yeah, he's a good uh, guy. <laughs> about to lead into some weird shit here. So great guy. Um, but but he uh, he's a carpenter in the early '90s. That was when like the Bellagio was going up, the City Center was going up in Vegas, and and he was like building all these things. And to this day, TJ, who you know right now is unemployed, right? You know. Um, but to this day, TJ, every time you drive by the Bellagio, he's like, I built that. I built that. Like, TJ, you didn't build the fucking Bellagio. <laughs> but he had some role in it being built. So if you give people a little role and shit, they'll fucking own it and they'll run with it. And the more people that own whatever project you have or have some sort of ownership in it, the less likely it is to fail. And people take, like, they take shit personal. Do you know? Like, if a door breaks on a box, they're going to fix it. Do you know? They'll see to it that it gets fixed. Like, yeah. people take shit personal. So, if you give them ownership and the thing just blew up, and then in COVID, uh, during, I went from there and was um, supervisor at the shelter. And then from the shelter, uh, became a operations manager of a business improvement district for the for the ambassadors, you know, on the on the streets in, in Reno. And then from there, I uh, I quit that and started. A non, the, the, I turned Karma Box into a nonprofit, just doing outreach in the in the streets, and it was around a uh, around a it was called the Portland Loo, right? So the, they wanted to put this uh, bathroom by the river, right? So that people because there was issues with the toxicity of the water, right? And they wanted to make sure because people are homeless were living on the river, and it's more than just it. Uh, the 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 water being polluted you know with all the shit that's going in there things flying in there people using the bathroom in there stuff like that it was you know we're eroding the banks of the river right and so when you erode the banks trees are dying plant life's dying um uh um the temperature of the water could increase just all the things right and uh and so i a lady reached out to me she was like can you help me with this and so i started doing outreach um, for her, only four hours a day, five days a week on the river. But there's, we had this camp developed. On the, this was on the south side of the river. We had this camp developed about 300, 400 people on the on the um, <clears throat> on the north side. And so after I would I would do outreach over here, but then I would go through the camp. And what I realized is that like is that you're not going to walk up to somebody in a camp and be like, hey man. Get your life together. You wanna you wanna come with me? You wanna go to fucking rehab? You get, nobody's gonna be like, let me just grab my shit. And we, we can go now. Doesn't fucking work like that. So how do you how do you like engage folks? So I like I came over and at first it was kind of rough, right? Because I looked like I might be a cop. Right? <laughs> I dudes right up to me on their BMX. They're 45. Like if you're 45 riding a BMX, you made some bad choices. Dude. <laughs> and the dude dude rode up to me and he like slid to a stop. He's like, hey, you a cop, bro? I'm like, no. He was like, well, we don't believe you, man. We think you're a cop. And I'm like, well, then don't buy drugs from me. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But anyway, so I started, <laughs> I started working with these dudes. And what you find out is in the camp, like, <clears throat> the biggest issues they have is trash. And so you got your trash and you have your first responders. First responders are coming from behavior. Right. And so I would pitch these guys on like, dude, would you agree that the reason your camp gets fucked with so much is because of of your environment 
and uh, and your behavior. Yeah, man, Steve's a dick. Do you know? And do you know they talk about how terrible everybody else is? That's the greatest, right? What a fucking mess here. No, it's not mine. Well, you're sitting on it. You adopted it. Now it's yours. Do you know? And but we would we would uh, get them to agree that it's a good idea to keep it clean. And if you live in a shitty environment, do you feel like maybe we might behave a little shitty? And you're like, yeah, dude. So I got these this in this camp. Like everybody was just volunteering to help clean, help clean, and. Um, and so I would, I built like a little team of these guys every day and, and I pitched the county on it and the county like started getting, got me, uh, helped me get funding to do a program called the river stewards where I would hire people. I come up like, who wants to make some money? Then we'd grab, you know, four people mm-hmm. for five, for four hours a day. And I would give them gift cards at the end of the day for helping us clean up the river. And then that would also give me a vehicle to get to know people. Do you know what I mean? And so we would, um, we uh, we started getting folks off the off the streets. We started getting folks into treatment. Mm-hmm. Built another outreach team, and then from there we created a um, created a, a safe camp. Right. So we learned from the the, the workforce how to do a um, how to because most of outreach you're not gonna like if somebody's you're hard, you're hard pressed to convince somebody that's living a lifestyle that that. Um, that they have a problem. Absolutely, we have the problem, right? So how do you how do you convince somebody that's already you know set in a way of life to move out of that? Because change is different, right? If, yeah. Any of us, like you don't have to be homeless to, to not want to, yeah, to not want to change some shit. If I went in your house and moved some furniture around, you'd be like, hey, what the fuck, man? <laughs> what the fuck, man? Don't move that couch. That picture goes there. <laughs> you know, um, so change is weird. Period. Um, but what we were learning to do is we were learning how to negotiate. So how do you negotiate with people that have nothing to lose and don't have a problem? Well, we have to, you have to, and, and I started, I read this book from Chris Voss called Never Split the Difference. And he talks about tactical empathy, right? And how can you leverage someone's emotions? Well, part of that is, um, is, is being there and being accessible during a traumatic cue for change. So if all my day is traumatic, you're not going to convince me that it's time to change until something more traumatic happens, right? An overdose, somebody dies, you get the shit beat out of you, your tent was burnt down, and not because of a heating fire, but because of a conflict resolution fire. You stole my bike, motherfucker? <laughs> conflict resolution you know? fire. <laughs> and most of them were. Most of them were conflict resolution fires. And then when you, I sent your tent on fire, because you have so much shit, it ties up seven tents. Do you know? Seven tents go down. And so we were like, um, and that's it. So now I have seven good conversations or negotiations and it doesn't have to be hard bargaining it can be soft bargaining but mm-hmm. we can but at least we're getting people to think outside of that and it's it started to work right and we we started to um we started actually getting folks off the streets and convincing people it's a good idea to go to the shelter we created this whole board with every you know where someone hey you want to go to the shelter now nah, there's too many people there would you agree that there's Many people here. Would you want to go to the shelter? No, there's bed bugs. Would you agree that out here in the wilderness there's fucking bugs, man? Do you know? And so we were, you're able to like start negotiating. We started to like make sense. One of the, my favorite gigs was we read about this. Uh, I saw a video of this guy. There was, it, he was doing this, uh, it's called uh, NLP, but it's transformational, so neuro linguistic programming. Mm-hmm. But he was doing it to change, like, you know, to, to improve your life, right? So it's a, personal development thing it was this they showed all these horses these horses that were corralled and uh and um they backed the trailer up and then all these cowboys like six of these cowboys came out and they had whips and they had fucking ropes and they're whipping the shit out of this horse and they're tugging on him and the horses rearing and neighing and fighting and it showed the timeline it was like two hours it took six guys to get one fucking horse in the trailer and they i mean they were whipping the shit out of this horse and tugging they're taking turns and then they showed the camera to this or they you know moved the camera to this older dude older wise looking motherfucker right and he comes up and he like grabs the the rope around the the horse's head and he real gently he gave it a tug a soft tug and the horse reared up and instead of hitting the horse he just whipped this side of him and then whipped the back side of him came back and he did it on this side pulled it horse rears up he boom 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 then he did it a couple more times and it showed the timeline in about six minutes from just whipping the side of the horse the guy put the 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 rope down and the horse just walked up the trailer 
And like, how the fuck did you do that? He was like, I'm not going to tell the horse what to do. I'm just going to tell him what he can't do. And I can make it make sense. And so if you can use this same gig with folks that we're working with, in addition to other things like motivational interviewing, whatever, mm -hmm. you change the narrative, you present what makes sense, you can, you can really start changing people a little bit at a time, right? The aggregation of marginal gains. I don't need to get you to change 100% today. If I do 1%, in a year, you'll be 50% better than you were when we started. Do you know? Mm -hmm. And they, um, so it started working and we pitched them on, like, well, what if, like, we were with these folks all day? Do you know? And so we pitched a safe camp and we opened the safe camp and we're learning a lot, right, from the, from the safe camp because um, it's no barrier. So we have people, and when you create a program, you have to create a program, you have to wrap the policies around the worst, the, the one that performs the, the least. The 1%. Yeah. The one that performs the least. And yeah. so sometimes when you do that, you're doing a disservice to the ones yeah. that can perform better. So we have to be mindful of that. And we have to, you know, we have to, like in there, we'll have to change language. Like we don't have rules there. If you tell somebody, all right, man, follow the rules. They're like, fuck rules, man. <laughs> Never followed rules. It's not who I am. But if you're like, well, what about guidelines? All right, guidelines, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guidelines are cool, man. You know, so there's like, we learn, there's like different things and there's people that like, when you bring them in, you provide, you know, there's four constants in homelessness. You're subject to the elements, your shit's going to get stolen, you're going to have to physically defend yourself. You're always on someone else's property. Always. And all these things uh, put you in a condition of fight or flight. And you can't do two things at once. You can't protect yourself and grow at the same time. Because right now my underbelly is exposed. And so if you're in a condition, we always like this, you can actually regress, right? You can get sicker. They say that it takes 120 days of a person of, uh, of sound mind to develop a mental illness on the streets. And it's because of the cortisol. It's being pumped through when you're in fight or flight. You're always guarded. You don't sleep fucking well. Um, you know, you're always being asked to move. All the things. So how can you expect people to grow from the street? It's not going to fucking happen. And so we've, um, <clears throat> you know, Robert Sapolsky wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. And he talks about, like, how stress, how we carry stress, how we hold stress. Do you know, and it's difficult, like we were you know, saying, like, it's difficult to process trauma when you're actively creating more trauma. Right? Like the idea, mm -hmm. you know, with the... You know, the idea that you, um, that you don't need recovery. I strongly disagree with that. How, you could, how to get to recovery is one thing. But you, it's, it's difficult to process how you got to where the fuck you're at with a head full of drugs. Why do I use drugs? Well, how do you fucking know? Yeah. You're super high all the time. It's <laughs> difficult. Yeah. I, like, I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Strangely enough, <laughs> when I stopped using meth, I wasn't manic and depressive all the time. And usually, if you're depressed, it's because you're doing some depressing shit, bro. <laughs> Life sucks right now. You should be. Do you know? Like, if you're fucking check engine lights in your truck, don't sharpie it out. Lift that fucking hood. Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> that's it, man. Don't do it. So, um, <clears throat> but, but yeah, so that's, we're, we're, we're learning, like, so much from, from being in there. And, uh, and we're actually, we have a 36% success rate nice. in a no barrier, which is... It's amazing. It's it's kind of unheard of, dude. And it's because of this constant narrative. It's because of how we train our staff. Like, if you look at it, a lot of shelter staff are two checks away from being a client. Yeah. And we want them to grow them. It's a bad idea, bub. Mm -hmm. It's a fucking terrible idea. You better train your people. A lot of people need to learn, you know, like what you're doing, like with work ethic and work etiquette. And we need to learn how to communicate again on the streets. If I have a problem with you and I knock you out, people like me. Do you know? Yeah. But if I do it at work, <laughs> people don't like me. I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. Traditionally, if I punch him in the face, things happen for me. You know, good things, depending on what I identify as good. Do you know? And so, and, and that's it. So what, what sees to it that we're successful on the streets will also see to it that we suck in a housing bubble or in the rest of the world. And so there has to be like a transition. And so what we're learning is while we have them <clears throat> start to shift start to work on them right and you can work on people without them knowing mm -hmm. right by putting in like you know we, we condition folks to like to be able to communicate better do you know you condition folks to be able to um be cognizant of their footprint do you know like that and you know we learn about uh 
you know, the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, it's cool if you do that, but what about the rest of the people? And what if somebody were to do that around you, you know, and you get to have these conversations that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And so it's, I, and, and from there, then we opened a, uh, we call it the Karma Crib. And it's, uh, it's just a transitional house where we take folks that, that are performing well. When I say performing well, like they got a job, they're making all their appointments. And again, I don't, again, we don't, I don't even ask about drugs. I can watch somebody perform. And if you're doing drugs and you're performing like that, well done. <laughs> well good, fucking done. Good for fun. you, sir. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> shake your hand, sir. But, but so, so we don't even ask about drugs. We just, if you're performing well, then we'll put you in this, in this house. And of course, there's, there's rules there. There's more rules there. There's more rules at our safe camp than there is at the other shelter. But people are lining up to come there because of... I think because it's also private, right? You get to have your, your pod, but we're in the pods. I have my staff in there a couple times a day, making sure that the pods are up to the, up to standard. And this is also teaching them how to care for their own apartment. Mm-hmm. Remember I got, I got locked up in the sober living house. And the most difficult thing in the beginning for me was making my bed. Yeah. I made a fucking bed in nine years, dude. Do you know, I remember I took a selfie with a pillow top twin mattress it's like finally made it man <laughs> all you haters <laughs> i get it man you know <laughs> uh but uh but but yeah like there's like learning how to make a bed yeah. was a big deal showing up on time was a big deal not cussing someone out when they were telling me correcting me was a big deal so there's a lot that that we're able to do here because we got them if you got them go to work and uh yeah so that's then we have a little prison reentry gig too called grit grow refine integrate thrive and we will pick folks up from treatment centers and get them to the gym and do a wellness class um that's more about like setting goals and you know learning about who you are and all the things and uh then we do a nutrition class nutrition is interesting in recovery right like we're like you know how many people are like we should teach people how to cook good Sounds good. Sounds really <laughs> fucking good, man. We do, we tried that, and not to say that it won't work, but there needs to be more yeah. than just uh, than just saying that. What we did was, I remember I did this nutrition class teaching people about macros, micros, um, you know, all the uh, post withdrawal, all the things, and how your food can affect this and all the stuff. And then we we got a moment where we're like, all right, everybody, and they had their food stamps. And we created a menu, we called it our, our food stamp diet, where you can actually eat healthy with, on a food stamp diet, right? Mm-hmm. We created the meals for them, the portions, all the stuff. Everybody had their papers, everybody had their cards. We went to Walmart and- uh, It's like a bingo card. Oh, it was great. <laughs> we went to Walmart and the second that we got to like the produce, cause the tile changes when you go from regular store to produce, all the cards were like, eat. <laughs> and like, you know, um, I, and so, people didn't want to do it it was because they trusted this and you know they trusted what they, it's what they know they didn't want to change because what if that sucks how am i going to eat do you know yeah. and so what we did was we like we're like all right go out buy whatever you want but it's but what you think is healthy buy what you think is healthy when you bring it back then we'll negotiate with you and so we had one lady come back with seven honey buns, one for each day. We actually call her a honey bun. Um, and so we negotiated one of the honey buns for a croissant with not so much fucking sugar in it. But that's how we have to do it. And we have to be bought in for the, for the bigger picture because you're growing humans. You're not like, you're like, get off drugs, motherfucker. You know, like it's, well, hold up, hold up. Drugs are doing their job. It's not the drugs. Right? They're the thing. You know, they're part of it, mm-hmm. sure. But it's like we have this mindset now that we just want to, and who knows what it is. Is it because when you know elected officials want to solve a problem in their term? You know, as long as we can fix this in two years, we're good. You know, um, and but anyways, it it requires a lot more work, and we have to be bought in for the work. Do you remember Baby Jessica? When Baby Jessica fell into the well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh dude, that was. I mean, it was national fucking new do you remember that it was somewhere in the midwest the little baby uh fell into a well and uh and like the whole city shut down yeah whole city shut down to get this baby out and the nation was watching it on the news at the edge of their seats waiting for them to get baby jessica out of the well and you're like well why is that why is 
Why, why did they put that much energy into getting this baby out of the well? She hasn't lifted one fat finger to help anybody. She doesn't have any money, influence, power, or even friends. And we put all this energy into getting this baby out of that well. And it was because the, the baby, right, this baby, has, it carry, she carries intrinsic value, right? Mm -hmm. Without doing anything, the, the baby has value. Without, um, and, and it's who could, and what could this baby potentially be, right? So if we looked at homeless people and drug addicts yeah. in that same way, Absolutely. you know, right now we'll drop food down a well. Or we'll drop some dope down the well. Yeah. But we're, we won't do the work to get them out. And it's, a, sure it's a, it's a, I think the solution is into buying in to the work. Yeah. And we have to do it. It's our responsibility. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. No, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And the solution and the work are two real key things I think you just said there, right? It's, it's no, we're not going to solve it in two years, but what's the solution? Are we working in the solution or are we perpetuating the problem? Yeah. And the solution usually comes with work. Yeah. It's not magic. So what are we going to do? What's the action piece? And is it solution focused? And is it, does it fit, you know, the individual? Not yep. just here's the blanket, here's the cookie cutter way to do it all. It doesn't work that way. And that's why I like this Alberta model. It's thought out. It's planned out. It's time. Like you have to be, you got people here um, putting systems in place that are, you know, you got to be willing to plant the seed for a tree that you'll never sit in the shade in. You got to be bought in for that, and and it seems like that the model they have out here is is honoring that, like setting it up for for mm -hmm. later. Do you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with that, that's pretty solid time, and the pizza just arrived. So <laughs> supper time. We're getting to the hour here, so uh, I guess we're at any any kind of final thoughts. What do you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, you got a, a either a nugget of wisdom or something fucking hilarious to say, or a combination of the or two. Or both. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I was going to say something fucking earlier that I thought was brilliant. And I lost my train of thought. Squirrel. So Weird a duck squirrel. walks into a bar. <laughs> That's my joke, right? I own that joke. Do you guys know the joke? The duck walks into a bar joke? All right. So can I, may I? Well, I will gift you the joke. So he, he told this joke. When we were in uh, Seattle, that was the funniest fucking shit. It was the, it's one of the, it's a, it's a, it's a dry joke, but those are my favorite, right? The Norm McDonald jokes, right? And, uh, and so it, so a duck walks into a bar and, uh, and he asked the bartender, he's like, and the bartender's like, what the fuck? There's a duck walking into the bar and the duck throws his wing up on the bar. He says, barkeep, I'm going to need a beer. The bar's like, what the fuck? Uh, all right, man. Um, let me. Get you a beer. <laughs> he grabs him a beer and the duck smashes the beer and he fucking leaves. And the next day, does the same thing. And the bartender's like, what the shit is? Okay. And he gets him a beer and he does this all week. Um, now, keep in mind, the duck is also wearing a tool belt. Fucking tool belt, man. The bartender's like, dude, what is going on? You're fucking this up. Like, you gotta, you gotta start it with it's, it's a true story. Well, the, I, it is a true story. <laughs> yes, thanks you mean that. it's not? <laughs> You fucker. That's, that's, what is that? Radical fucking honesty? honesty. Right, yeah. yeah. But so this duck, this this duck walks in. He's wearing a tool belt the last day of, you know, getting beer every day. The the duck, uh, the bartender's like, dude, you, you got to tell me, man. What the fuck is going on? You're a duck. You're coming in here buying a beer. And you got a tool belt on. The duck's like, all right, I get it. Okay. You're saying that ducks can't have beer. You're saying that I can't work across the street on my sheetrock job, come over here and take the edge off like the rest of the people? No, no. Are you trying to discriminate? No, I'm not discriminating. Wait, you do drywall? Duck's like, yeah, I do drywall right across the street. And if I keep working the way I'm working, I might even get a raise, 20 bucks an hour. And the guy bartender's like, holy shit. That's incredible, man. Uh, have you... Have you ever thought about quitting your drywall or have you ever thought about joining the circus? You ever thought about that? There's a lot of money in the circus. And the duck looks at him and he's like, huh. So you're saying the circus needs drywall? <laughs> yeah? Yeah? That's fucking awesome. <laughs> because he's a duck and he drinks. <laughs> that was the that's the shit right there i love those jokes all right remind me to tell you about the bear and bob later okay well we'll okay. get there maybe, okay so maybe bob is like no i'm fucking <laughs> <laughs> all 
awesome stuff, man. Dude, I fucking love you. I could listen to you for hours. Uh, you've become a pretty solid friend, and uh, I appreciate having you. I appreciate you coming on to share your story with us. It's pretty cool. Right on, brother. Thanks for having me. And I tell you, like, your fucking squad, this squad right here, I've met just about everybody on your team, and they're all high-frequency pins. You know what I mean? Nobody in this room is fucking with my flower and it feels good. <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks for making the, the long trek up to Calgary, Alberta from Reno, dude. Oh, dude. It's it pretty was, awesome. It's worth it, man. Worth and you got to experience minus 40 weather. Not really. I stayed in here the whole time. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't experience any of the fucking weather. I, just, I saw it from the fucking window. <laughs> I'm going to tell people I did, though. For sure. I'm going to write that out. Radical honesty. <laughs> Radical honesty, brother. <laughs> right on. Well, awesome. thanks, man. That's thanks cool. Thanks for coming out, buddy. I love you. Right on, man. Thank you. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.